0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. It's
1: 1939 in Banks, Mississippi. Robert Johnson walks into a juke joint where two of the most popular guitarists of the day, Sunhouse and Willie Brown, were playing a show for a packed house. He had not been seen in almost a year and asked Sunhouse if he could sit in his chair and play a few songs. Sun replied saying, All right, but you sit in that chair, you better do something with it. Sunhouse had heard Robert play before and had not been impressed by what he thought of as Robert's mediocre talent. Robert, a young man who was already a widower at age 19, strode up to the stage, sat down with his guitar. The audience had no idea what was going on, but what happened next started one of the most famous legends in the Mississippi Mississippi Delta Blues history and would have a profound impact on music for the next 80-plus years. Surrounded in mystery, there were only three known pictures of him and 29 recorded songs. Sadly, only eight years after that performance, he would become the inaugural member of the Macabre 27 Club.
2: hey everybody this is phil Schaff here with phil horner and a special guest today backed by popular demand tim field thank you for joining us on the missing chapter podcast today phil and tim we are brewing something special a utica roasting company house blend uh, i may have put in a couple uh, scoops too much because i tell you it's <laughs> roaring through my veins right now man it's a it's a strong one but it's a great one and something else here today. You got a special one on tap with Mr. Tim Field, who's already playing the guitar in the background. So, Tim Field, thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I think you got a special one for us today.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. Well, Timmy, your first two episodes have done amazingly well, and like Phil said, we have a strong brew going. We got the guitar in the house. Amen. Yeah, and uh, we're looking forward to this. You asked us uh, before we started out if we were familiar with um, with the person that you're going to be talking about today. And I'm not at all. I'm not mm-hmm. at all. Um, and like Phil said, you never disappoint. We're really excited. And uh, this is going to be a good one. And, and it's appropriate because he's kind of been shrouded in mystery. Yeah.
2: Now, the, the the thing that I, I immediately thought of when you um, did the intro for us and then started playing the guitar was the Buddy Bolton episode, right. which is one of the fan favorites. We get a lot of compliments about that episode. Uh, and this kind of has the same undertones here so i'm curious about what you got for us
1: yeah it's uh, it, it's it's a good one there's a lot there's a lot of levels um, to the story so uh let's get after it yeah now. let's do it get away all right so robert johnson was born in early may of 1911 in a small saddlebag house with cardboard and newspapers used to cover the walls he was the fourth child born of julia dodd and the first with julia and noah johnson Their relationship was short-lived, however, as the stress of raising four children was just too much for the unmarried pair to withstand. So Julia ends up leaving Noah and spends the next few years moving from place to place, finally ending up in Memphis, Tennessee, with her former husband and the father of her first three children, Charles Spencer. Living arrangements were cramped at best and difficult as both Charles and Julia were in new relationships, and Julia had another son by a different father. So frustrated, Julia had to move on to find work and a means to support herself, but she left Robert with the Spencer family in 1913. He's just two years old, and now he's left with pretty much strangers. Mm -hmm. Memphis, though, was a culturally diverse city with a rich musical scene, and Robert almost certainly would have heard all sorts of street musicians growing up during during his time there growing up. In addition, he would be exposed to hoodoo spiritual practices developed by slaves based on tribal rituals from Africa and botanical root work from the southern states and the Caribbean, and would have an influence on his lyrics in the future. More importantly, Robert was also enrolled at a local school. There's a woman named Julia Hooks, who was a musician, educator, and social worker, and who was an activist for Black schools in Memphis. This was important as Robert no doubt had some musical education while attending the school. It also gave, it, gave him an advantage in that he knew how to read and write, skills most of his contempor- contemporaries did not have. The school he attended most likely was the Carnes Avenue School, which surpassed the standards of some of the white schools in grades 3, 4, and 5. He went by the name of Robert Spencer at this time, as he had not yet been told about his biological father, Noah Johnson. Robert was enjoying life in a culturally rich and urban environment, and he looked to have a bright future beyond working on the farm as a laborer, which so many young black men was pretty much going to be their only choice. Mm -hmm. Now, years later, Robert's mother, Julia, marries a sharecropper named Will Dusty Willis. And in 1919, she shows up in Memphis to take Robert to live with her on the farm in Arkansas so that he could help out. Once again, his life is uprooted. Robert hated farming and longed for the days when he was in school. Sharecropping, as you guys know, was not an easy life. He did not get along with his stepfather. The sharecropper system was set against the farmers ever making a living. When they were paid, it was only in plantation credit or script that could only be used in the plantation commissary. Hmm. The work was difficult and included chopping cotton, which was the job of picking the weeds between the cotton plants with hoes, shovels, and picks. In early fall, during the picking season, yeah. he was expected to pick cotton. As a young boy, he was given a six-foot-long sack that he would have to fill, take the full sack, filled sack to a wagon to be weighed, dumped, so he could fill it again. The work went from can to can which simply meant early morning when you can see, all the way through to the evening when you can't see anymore. The work was also very hard in the hands, which would be sore and blistered by the end of the day, making it difficult to play guitar. Robert loved music, and by the age of 15, could play guitar, harmonica, juice harp, and a little bit of piano. His first instrument was likely a thing called a diddly bow, which is an instrument that you would attach some nails to the side of a shack and string wire between those two nails. And then you take a glass bottle, wedge it underneath the strings, so the strings would be taut, and then use another bottle, kind of like a slide guitar where you would pluck the string, and you could uh, play songs that way. His half sister Carrie helped him um, step up to a cigar box guitar since he could not afford a real guitar. They literally take an old cigar box, put a, a wooden neck on it, and put some strings on it.
2: Was this a? Were these popular instruments that they would fashion up?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. I mean, this is this is this is what they had to make music. And you know, if, if there's anything I've learned in my life, uh, music always seems to enter in cultures, no matter how awful the circumstances are, there's, there's always music.
0: And especially the circumstances that you're describing. I mean, that not only entertainment wise, but being able to preserve culture and being able to pass along stories. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you said he was, he was able to read and write where a lot of the the people he was around, you know, weren't able to.
1: And and music's going to become, you're going to see it's, it's very important for, for these people because being a black person in Mississippi in the 1920s, 1930s, not an easy place to be. Mm -hmm. So um, Robert, any chance he could could get, Robert was playing his music, which frequently meant he was missing his farm work. Um, And that became a problem between him and his stepfather, and he would frequently receive beatings from that. But that doesn't stop him. And as he gets older, he would run away to the Spencer family in Memphis to get away from the farm. Now, Robert's mother eventually tells him about his real father, Noah Johnson. Now he's confused and he goes by both names in school and by his friends. So he's known as Robert Johnson and Robert Spencer. When he was performing in Memphis and in Robinsonville areas, he knew he did not want to be a farmer and hated when people um, called him Little Dusty. After his step, uh, which was uh, the name of his stepfather. So by 1927, Robert's now 16 years old with the help of his sister Carrie, they had finally saved up enough money to buy a store-bought guitar that was missing two strings. Immediately his playing improved and soon he was able to save up the additional 10 cents needed to purchase the last two strings, 10 cents for two strings. Um, But the biggest improvement came when Willie Brown, who was a very talented guitar player, moved into the Robinsonville area. Now this desire to get off the farm was deeply ingrained in Robert. And um, he realized that in order to get better to fulfill his dream he would have to talk to anyone who knew how to play so he'd go up to these people and, and pick up tips on how to learn songs how to improve his guitar playing he also found that he could make money playing juke joints throughout the area a juke joint is a place where black people could go to listen to music dance drink corn whiskey and celebrate after a long week there are sometimes there are sometimes a store somebody's house transformed to accommodate people coming to hear the music or to blow off steam. He could earn as much as $5 in free food and whiskey for the night, which was more money than his stepfather could make. He also discovered that he liked to drink, and he also liked the additional attention that the woman would give him when he played his guitar, which would become a problem as he gets older. 1928, Robert continues to play wherever people will listen to him at juke joints, street corners, in front of a local grocery store, which is where he met a girl named Virginia Travis. Even though she was only 15 and he was 18, they decided to get married on February 17th, 1929. had to lie about their age on their marriage license. Robert was so in love with Virginia that he decided to give up his dream of being a musician and started working on the plantation, which is surprising since he was so passionate about his music. By late summer of that year... They were expecting their first child. Virginia moved into her family's home with her parents as the due date approached while Robert continued to work the farm. While she was away, he took the opportunity to pick up his guitar. Once again, he made his way up to a parent's home playing in jukes as he traveled up highway one to earn some extra money. He was so excited for the arrival, arrival of the baby, but he was too late.
2: Mm.
1: By the time he got to the home of Virginia's parents, he learned that both she and the baby died during oh childbirth gosh. and were already buried. Now, blues music did not have a good reputation for many people and was often referred to as the devil's music. Virginia's family, seeing the guitar on Robert's back, blamed him and the music for the loss of the daughter and her child and for not being there when he died. So that's, that's a lot of weight
0: to carry on a... Uh, 20 year olds uh, shoulders and somebody who's been through a lot growing up as it is. I mean, this, this individual's life, his life has been extremely difficult. Yeah.
1: And it's, you just have to wonder how people can get, get through a, a situation like this. I mean, this was a life altering event for Robert and he was devastated by the loss of the wife and the unborn child. Friends were nervous around him because he turned his back on God and would start to curse him so vehemently when he was drinking. They didn't want to be around him when he acted like this because they were afraid he would literally be struck down in front of them. He returned to live with his mother and stepfather, falling back into the same habits of avoiding work, getting beat by Dusty and running away up to Memphis to live with the Spencer's. He continued to play his guitar and watch other musicians like Charlie Patton, Willie Brown, and Willie Moore to learn as much as he could and was getting quite popular in the local area. Then he heard a new guitar player named Sunhouse play. It was a different style that used a bottleneck slide and had more raw energy than the folk style that he had been used to playing. Sunhouse recalls Robert trying to play his guitar while they were on a break, and people would get annoyed at the noise he would make and ask Sun to get him off of the stage. This recollection is in question because Robert was an established musician playing around the local area by this time. I think what more likely happened was that he wasn't able to play quite as good as Sunhouse, or it wasn't the style of music that people wanted to hear. Robert, perhaps disappointed in not being as good as Sunhouse or maybe needing a change in his life, decided to seek out his biological father in Hazlehurst, Mississippi. He wanted to try to make a connection and possibly establish a relationship with his father. So he traveled south and was not seen for over a year until he walked into the juke in Banks, Mississippi, that Sunhouse and Willie Brown were playing that night in 1930. They saw him come in with his guitar strapped to his back and make his way up through the crowd to the stage. House said, well, boy, you still got that guitar, huh? What do you do with that thing? You can't do nothing with it. Robert said, let me have your seat for a minute. (laughs) House replied, all right, you better do something with it too. Robert was nervous because he wanted so badly to impress these blues guitar players that he had looked up to. He pulled his guitar off his back, sat down on the chair on stage. Nobody knew what to make what was going on. He began playing his first song, and by the time he had finished, everybody's mouth was wide open in amazement. Robert owned the night. The younger player had defeated the master, He was so good that it was believed that Robert had made a deal with the devil at the crossroads to become the best guitar player that ever lived. Robert would continue playing his guitar, and as the legend spread of his deal with the devil, everyone in Mississippi wanted to hear him play. He even had two recording sessions in 1936 and 1937 that produced 29 recordings. But his drinking and womanizing caught up with him just a year later. He had been having an affair with a woman named Beatrice Davis. Her husband found out and decided he needed to teach him a lesson. So he gave Beatrice a bottle of corn whiskey that he had dissolved mothballs in, knowing that she would give it to him that night um, and that he would be drinking from it. It shouldn't have been enough to kill him, though, just make him feel very sick. But because he had an ulcer already and esophageal varices, the poison caused hemorrhaging in his throat and stomach. The severe pain and bleeding lasted two agonizing days. Even if he had received medical help, it is unlikely that he would have survived. Robert Johnson died August 16th, 1938. He was just 27
0: years old.
2: Wow. I got a lot of notes here.
0: I, so Me too. Yeah. I got a lot of notes here. Phil, I'm going to let you go first. Go ahead. Well, I,
2: I got to say, I mean, there's so many things we could pick apart about this, and I think we will. But uh, one of the first things you mentioned that really resonated with me is as you're describing some of the things that they would... That they would conjure up these ideas of how to create music, mm-hmm. and when you're when you have a life that's so rough, you always see people in history finding ways that they can outlet some of their frustrations. And for so many people, it's music. Yeah, and you see some of the best, most unbelievable lyrics, um, chords, whatever songs, be just come through, uh, you know, pain of people's lives. Yeah. And I I see this, and I I I don't know why, but I immediately thought of Jurassic Park. When when um, the quote was, nature will find a way. Yes. Like music, music yeah. will find a way. Like it doesn't matter how many times you take this guitar away from me, I, I'm gonna fashion up a, a couple of strings. I'll save ten cents to yep. get two more. Yep. You know, and I it, I don't care. This is gonna be my outlet. The memory that always comes back to me
1: is when I was in uh, Dachau uh,
2: concentration camp.
1: Yeah, on the wall was music that was written by the people who were in the camp. I mean, if you're in that place and you can still find music, it's a, it's powerful.
2: Right. I mean, you hear stories about, you know, some of those survivors that are actually writing lyrics in their own blood to, to, to outlet their, their frustrations and their you know?
0: Um, But I want to point out something, take a look at my notepad right here. Personal tragedy. I don't think it leads. I, I was looking for a word as I was taking my notes, not so much inspiration, but to go along with what Phil said, you like, my, the two names that I jotted down, I think of Eric Clapton and James Taylor. It's like these people who have personal loss. And because that, maybe it's coping. Maybe it's part of their their healing. They produce some of the best music of their career. So it's like in one sense, it's helping further your career and you're doing great work. But at the same time, at, at that unbelievable expense. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, think about like the, the way you feel when you have music you feel like a specific time in history. You you can resonate with the time period that it was created in or the event that it was relating to. I think this is great. And the only mm-hmm. other thing I, I that popped into my mind too, is that this poor man, his entire life was looking for someone to love him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Searching for his biological father. When in reality, the only thing he had and the only thing that ever loved him back was his music. And there's actually going to be interesting that you mentioned Eric Clapton because,
1: there's going to be a connection that you're going to see a little bit later on so it's it's really interesting a little portion there you that, go
2: that note out. and to to piggyback what you said too phil is that it was always music was loving him back but then it must have destroyed him to hear that his music they think was the cause of the of the <laughs> tragedy yeah. so you go from having your music as the outlet to now, every time you play, it must be a subtle reminder that now music could be a burden. Yeah, I mean th- th- that flip flop; it, it, it could change anybody's and, life,
1: and that's a, that's a huge part of playing the blues. Yeah, you
2: know, it's it's,
1: it's a real tragic art form.
2: Mm. You know, and I think the best kind of music is always the, the music that evokes that kind of emotion, whether it's happy, sad, you know, exciting, that kind of thing.
0: Did you come across anything in your research where he was in that year gap? Yes. OK, we're going to talk about that. I, I won't. Um, I'll just plant that seed with the listener then. That's you, you, the second time you mentioned. I was like, I hope he comes around to that, yeah, because I'm yeah. dying to know where he was.
1: So here it is. The truth is that Robert Johnson didn't make a deal with the devil. He did what every musician needs to do, which is practice. Hmm. All right. When he went to look for his biological father, he was unsuccessful but instead found a name, man named Ike Zimmerman. Robert heard Ike playing and it was the best guitar he had ever heard. So he had to find out who this was and learn everything he could. And it turns out that Ike Zimmerman and Robert worked so well together that Ike invited him to stay at his house while he mentored him while living with Zimmerman's Robert never used his full name and just went only by RL, Hmm. which is one reason why nobody knew where Robert was during this year. Um, Remember, this is 1930, Mississippi. Not everyone had a phone in their house, so it was not like you could just send a text and say, Hey, where are you? What are you doing? Andrew? Wherever he performed, he was simply introduced as RL. Now, before we go any further, I, I I'm a music teacher, so I, I gotta teach you guys a little bit about the blues, which is a really elegant art form. It's can be extremely simple and extremely complicated. And I I hope to show you that right now. So first thing I'm going to play for you is a blues scale. Okay. All right. Simple. Just this. Okay. Basis of rock and roll. You can do a lot with it. Just come up with a simple melody. I'm just using the notes in, in, in the scale. There's no great secret to it. Yeah. The next thing is, the form the musical form which is called the 12-bar blues all right so you need to know one scale you need to know three chords and the repeated pattern of the 12-bar blues which goes like this starts with the one chord there's a four chord and a five chord i'll, I'll explain that in a moment mm-hmm. so here it is 12-bar blues in the most basic simple form two. Three, two. All right, so that's the 12-bar blues, all right? The cool thing about that on guitar is when you learn that scale and that pattern, you can play it in all 12 keys. It's the same pattern. You just do it in a different place on yeah. guitar. So again, simple, right? This is how Robert played the 12-bar blues. This is going to be in exactly the same key that I just played All right. And this is going to be a song by Robert Johnson called I Believe I'll Dust My Broom. I hope this works.
2: Nicely done. Nicely oh,
1: done. So you can see from that basic form, that was a lot different. There's a lot more mm-hmm. going on. And that's one of his more basic songs. I cannot play like Robert
2: Robert Johnson. Well, for the listeners right now, I know you can't see this, but to watch Tim do that, <laughs> your hands were going nuts. Yeah. Like the, the places you have to jump on the guitars, it's and that's, remarkable.
1: That's kind of one of the advantages that Robert Johnson had when you look at the pictures of him. You can see how long his fingers were. It was
0: unbelievable. So, and to think somebody from such meager, humble background produces this music. Do you know what I mean? It just goes to show. I mean, people out there, it, it of any background, mm-hmm. the gifts that they're given, yeah, and I, when they realize these gifts and and they they love it and they nurture it and foster whatever skills they have. It's, it's amazing. Yeah.
1: And, and I think the really lucky people are the ones that find their gift. Yeah. Every, everybody has a gift and, and the truly lucky people are the ones that actually can, and can find it.
2: And you know what it reminds me of too, is you hear of some of these, uh, you know, as an athlete, I always think of some of these stories, but you always think of, um, you know, the kids that have everything have, have optionless, you know things that they can do. Mm-hmm. You can you can do whatever you want, and the options are limitless. Well, sometimes it's the kid in the middle of the country who has nothing more to do than pick up this old rotten basketball and start shooting in the yes. in the driveway. Yeah. And there's nothing else to do. You know, so then they just do it over and over and over again, and then it yields results that yeah. someone with a million options couldn't couldn't do. Yeah. To get that ten thousand hours of muscle memory, you have you have someone like uh, like this young gentleman who's had an extraordinarily painful life in his 27 years of existence, yeah. but can produce something that really started with a bottle and two strings. Yes. And if you just do it over and over and over again, and because it's your passion, because it's your gift, like Phil said. Yeah. You you
1: want to do it and you make it happen.
2: Yeah. Because it it's something that you you absolutely love. And the
1: impact that he's
2: had because of that.
1: It's it's impacted a tremendous, I mean countless, yeah, countless people, which I'll, I'll get into it.
0: Now, is he still in Memphis at this point? Does he spend the majority of this? Or do you know? Is it Mississippi? He's, he's traveling around between the plantation that his
1: mother and stepfather live okay. on and the family that he knew in Memphis. And he's traveling
0: and, and playing in different places. Because I think about what we're talking about and how all these amazing creative musical capitals in our country, so to speak. New Orleans, Nashville, Memphis. There's something, there's something there, like where they're located and the people that are living and coming together. Mm-hmm. It just seems like there are a lot of Robert Johnsons out there. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. and it's it's it pieces together all those different things we talked about at the beginning of the podcast about culture and about storytelling and communicating between people who don't speak the same language. Right. But it's like these these places are where they're gravitating towards. Right. And they're and, creating amazing things. And, and there's many that we don't know about, like this, Ike Zimmerman,
1: not many people know about who this guy was. He, he didn't play out as, as, as much, you know, um, Robert Johnson was playing all over the place, especially after he had that one night where he outplayed Sun House and then the legend started to grow. But, you know, you got to believe, like you said, that there's all kinds of other people who are doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So... Zimmerman is is a bit of a character. His method of teaching is somewhat unorthodox because he believed that the best way to learn how to play the blues was in a cemetery at midnight. Okay? <laughs> they would go they would go there, sit on gravestones facing each other while they played. There wasn't anyone to bother you and the haints, a southern word for the ghosts or spirits, don't care what you sound like. Eventually, I took Robert out to play with him in different locations locations where people worked and had money to spend. After about a year, Robert was ready to return to Robinsonville to show off his talent. Because he cut Sunhouse's head, a phrase that meant he outplayed him, he was finally free. He made a statement that night, and his popularity kept growing, so that he could travel all over, play different venues, and nothing was tying him down to working in the field. He could go where he wanted. And when he was done with a place, he just moved on to the next one. So one of his songs called Crossroad Blues is one of the most famous songs and helped contribute to the myth of the deal with the devil. But if you look at the lyrics, it tells you a different story. The devil, although a very common theme in blues music, is not mentioned once. Huh. In fact, the first verse says, I went down to the crossroads, fell down on my knees. I went down to the crossroads, fell down on my knees. Ask the Lord above for mercy. Take me if you please. This sounds more like he's asking for forgiveness. Another verse says this. I went down to the crossroads, tried to flag a ride. Down to the crossroads, tried to flag a ride. Nobody seemed to know me. Everybody passed me by. Now, to this, it seems like he's afraid of being alone, which is not surprising since he was left alone in a stranger's house by his mother when he was just two. Also, his dream is for everybody to know him for his guitar playing. Was he worried that he would be a failure And in hoodoo, not voodoo, it's a little bit different. In hoodoo, crossroads are a place that was a place to contact spirits or a place to communicate between different worlds. For blues musicians, it was also a place that you were more likely to hitch a ride to your next gig. One last interesting fact about this song is that people who knew and heard Robert perform never recall him playing the song.
0: Thanks for listening to and supporting The Missing Chapter Podcast. If it sounds like we're having fun and we enjoy bringing you a new episode every week, it's because we are. Not only are we having a good time, but as teachers, producing our own podcast has allowed us
2: to connect with our students like never before. In fact, when people ask us where we got the idea
0: to start our own podcast, we tell them our students. If you're an educator and would like the opportunity to create, produce, and maintain your very own podcast, go to our website, themissingchapterpodcast.com. To learn how we can help make that happen for you. Don't be intimidated.
2: It's easy and fun. Go to the missingchapterpodcast.com to schedule an informative and interactive webinar with us today so that you can get started on your own educational podcast
0: for tomorrow. You'll have a great time doing it and we'll get the opportunity to work with us directly. Your hosts for the Missing Chapter Podcast, Phil Horinder and Phil Schaaf. I have to say, Tim, we've had a lot of fun with you here. Um, we're looking up things on the computer. We have a, a picture of Buddy Bolden. I believe it's his New York Times obituary with a picture of, of him on the front holding his guitar. And you weren't kidding. His, his fingers are so incredibly long. Um, you know, just the dialogue we've had amongst the three of us has been great. And just uh, to hear this story, I do feel like we have a lot of questions. Um, and I don't know if the answers are out there, but it's I, I guess that's part of it—just the yep. mystery surrounding people like Robert Johnson, what they've contributed, but we still don't know their full stories. No. And very often, their stories ended way too early and way too tragically.
1: Well, I, I do have some more—I have some more stuff here, some more information that kind of talks about uh, talks about this. Mm-hmm. So, one of my favorite stories about Robert Johnson is told by a musician named Johnny Shines, who frequently played shows and traveled with him. He and Robert were playing in West Memphis one time, and while they were on a break, they went out to go get something to eat and something to drink. While they're out, they're noticed this big fire, and Robert said, hey, that's, that's Hunt's place, which is where they were playing. Their guitars were in there, and were, everything was lost in the fire. No problem. They just started walking up Highway 61. Robert pulled out his harmonica and started playing. Before he knew it, the whole highway was blocked up with people watching them perform, paying them money. The police had to come and get everyone moving along, but they still made enough money to buy two new guitars when they got to the next city. That's amazing. So in doing my research, I found myself wondering, how is it that we even know about this amazing musician? Official records are difficult to accurately trace people's ages and locations, and his death certificate wasn't even discovered until 1967, which is when the name of his mother and father happened to be discovered as well, because that was on the death certificate. Census records have very little consistency from year to year, so researchers had to be detectives to piece together information that has been published about his formative years. Other stories come by word of mouth from relatives, other musicians that performed with Robert, but such stories get lost over time. How did researchers know the importance of his musical legacy? While he did have some success with his first few recordings, they were not getting any airplay over the radio. And after his death, people's attention switched to other musicians. It was another blues guitar player named Muddy Waters, who was responsible for creating a more modern blues sound that generated more interest in the Mississippi Delta blues specifically. Now, this attracted a different crowd of people, predominantly white college students, who began buying up old 78 RPM records and discovering the original Robert Johnson recordings. Hmm. Seeing the success inspired a guy named John Hammond and Columbia Records to re-release Robert Johnson's original recordings on the 1961 album, Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues, excuse me, King of the Delta Blues Singers. Now, people like Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, one of the original members, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, and Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin are hearing him firsthand. These musicians, in turn, have influenced countless of others through Robert Johnson's music. They have covered his songs like Crossroad Blues, better known today as Crossroads, made famous by Eric Clapton and Cream. That's amazing. Sweet Home Chicago, I'm sure you heard that. Love in Vain, done by uh, Rolling Stones. Come in My Kitchen and Dust My Broom. These are several other songs and several other songs by Robert Johnson continue to be performed today, keeping his legacy alive. Now, there's only three uh, photos of Robert Johnson adding to his mystery. One was taken just before his first recording session in 1936 and shows him dressed in a nice suit with a hat holding a Gibson guitar. The other two photos were taken in a five-cent photo booth, most likely in Memphis, and it's possible to estimate when it was taken because of the guitar he was holding. Remember that story I just told you about the fire where he lost his guitar and was able to buy a new one after the highway performance? Well, the guitar in the picture was identified as a Kalamazoo KG-14, which wasn't produced until 1936. Hmm. And this is the model that Johnny Shine said that he had bought with Robert. Records indicate a fire in West Memphis on December 11th, 1937. So the photo was taken after that date. This is how researchers have to piece together information to find out about Robert's brilliant, mysterious, and tragic life. Finally, there's the 27 Club. The 27 Club is a group of musicians that all died at the age of 27, some under mysterious circumstances. Some say they also sold their soul to the devil through their chosen art. Members include Brian Jones, an original member of the Rolling Stones again, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin. Amy Winehouse, and Kurt Cobain, to
2: name a few. I never knew that. Yep. I've never recognized that coincidence. All yeah. 27. Yep. Oh, yep. my gosh. All right. This was phenomenal. Yeah. Now, and- I, <laughs> the, the one thing I've been dying to ask, and it's probably a really poor way of asking this because I just said I'm dying to ask, but how did they actually find his death certificate? Because it, it it's, it's been it, what, about thirty years, twenty five years. Yeah,
1: it was a distant relative, um,
2: had found it in some paperwork. Oh my god! That they, that they had. So apart from that, I mean, would we even know about this guy if they didn't find his death certificate? And then,
1: well, I, I'm amazed. You know, you keep hearing how much we don't know about him, but I, you know, I'm reading this biography, Up Jumped the Devil. Yeah, and there's a lot of information. I'm thinking, you know, we know a lot about this guy, but that's now. Mm. This is all very recently, like, like I would say, from the '80s on, where people really started digging in and doing the research to find out about who this who this guy was, and talking to people like uh, Sunhouse, um, Johnny Shines, who played with him, lived with him, traveled with him. You know, so a lot of this is stories that are handed down, like I said, but a lot of it is pouring over census records. And in this book, there's there's copies of The records they used and just deciphering because names are wrong ages are wrong and i just can't imagine all the work that goes into piecing this together to to figure it out but they did
2: even on the new york times uh article about him it it even says a birth certificate if he had one has never been found yeah i i mean it it, we're really we're really blessed to even know as much as we do about him thank god you have you have people who you know, like yourself, yeah. would research this and keep his name alive and yeah. keep the talents going. I mean, in in this book, there's
1: even the picture of the original house that he was born in. At least they believe. I mean, there's no way to actually prove one hundred percent. The cemetery where he used to sit with Ike Zimmerman, one would sit on this side, one would sit on that side, and, wow. and face each other and play their guitars.
2: We'll have practice. to we'll have to uh, post those on social media so so the listeners can can really see what we're looking at here.
0: Yeah, Timmy, I have to tell you that the thing I kept coming back to as I was listening to this last part was a a quote. um, And I'm going to paraphrase it here from Eddie Van Halen, who we recently left. And it was something to the extent of that musicians come and go, but the music will live on forever. And this is the epitome of that. It's Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. if you produce music, you'll, you'll never die. Mm -hmm. And with someone like this, I mean, how, how fitting for him that he's still influencing the biggest of the big rockers yeah, today.
1: Absolutely. And, and and his style of playing was a foundation for classic
0: rock and roll. This
2: is this is how it developed. So as we as we close the episode, first of all, thank you. This is an incredible yeah, story. This is awesome. My um, secondly, what what do you want our listeners uh, taking away from the story?
1: Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of history out there and it's it's important to not lose it. And to not lose the memory of these great musicians, you you can still hear all of his music on Spotify. I mean, it's it's a, it's a great service. Um, but listen to the music, learn it, figure out how to play play an instrument, and find find your passion. You know.
2: Thank you for joining us. Until next time. I'm Phil Horinder. I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Tim Field. And another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.